Good morning, Maple Grove. Good morning. Awesome. Hey, let's do this. Uh, question, are you ready to feed on some God-breathed, holy and spirit-empowered, double-edged, will not return to an empty void word of God this morning? Yes. All right. Me too. Uh, Paul wrote these words from a prison cell to some Jesus followers in Philippi. Uh, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. And Peter wrote these words to a, a bunch of Jesus followers who were suffering extreme persecution under the Roman emperor Nero. Here's what he writes. 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 19. For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're being beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example. And you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Heavenly Father, we humbly come into your presence God, we thank you that you're always, always, always on your throne. And God, that no matter what we're feeling, we always have a reason to praise. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his example. We thank you that he shows us how to live in this chaotic, dark world. And God, I, I pray this morning that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts willing to respond in the way that you want us to. May your word come alive. May it be that double-edged sword. May it be that rain and snow falling down from the sky. May it not return back to you void. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in this message series for all of 2022. It's a series where we are going verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. And the title for the series is Matthew, the King and his kingdom, and what we're doing in this series is we're learning more about our king, Jesus, and we're learning more about his kingdom that he established 2,000 years ago. And I'm convinced that both of these pursuits, knowing our king better and knowing what it means to be a kingdom people better, are worthy of our time and attention. Maple Grove, what say you? Yeah. How do you answer that, right? We don't know, but we're with you, Steve. And, and since March, what we've been doing is we've been looking at Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus' radical, upside-down manifesto about what life in his kingdom is all about. And, and during the last three months, we've unpacked some powerful truth about what it means, again, to be a kingdom people. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. He said, blessed, joyful, fulfilled, satisfied, content, happy, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you reach the point when you recognize that I'm bankrupt before God. 
God, I need your help. I, I can't fix it. I, I can't mend it. I can't restore it. I can't put the pieces back together again. God, I need your help. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn for their loss, mourn for our loss and broken world, where they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who keep their power and strength under control for the benefit of others and the glory of God, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger to know God, to be right with God, to be like Jesus and hunger to make this world a better place, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who show mercy to those who have a material need, to those who mess up and need a second chance, to those who are on the outside looking in, to those who doubt, to those who fail, to those who disappoint them, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who actively seek to reconcile people to God and breathe truth and righteousness into conflict. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who are undivided, authentic, sincere, unpretending, not faking it, people of integrity, for they will see God. And here's the deal. When we live out these truths, we will be the salt of the earth. We will be the light of the world. And we'll not only be people who do not murder someone, but we will not allow anger to fester and grow in our hearts or allow lust to take root in our hearts for another person. And we'll be people who honor marriage and who fight to restore what God has joined together. And we'll be people who are truthful. Our yes will mean yes. Our no will be no. People can trust what we say. We will keep our promises. Our work can be trusted. And we'll be our bond. We've unpacked so many powerful truths the last three months. I want to share how Jesus concludes this sermon, a preview of what's coming, who knows when, in Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only, someone say, but only, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Kind of reminds me of Luke 6, 46, right, that terrifying verse. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Great question, right? Like, why do we? Why do I, why do you, why do we call him Lord, Lord, you're the boss of my life, you're in control, yet we do not do what he says? Jesus continues in Matthew, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and your name drive out demons and your name perform many miracles and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough for us, for me, for you, to simply hear Jesus' teaching about being poor in spirit, about being meek, about being merciful, about being salt, about being light, about being truthful about not lusting, about not having anger, about not, about not divorcing our spouse for any and every reason, we must put this teaching into practice. Or else, we are foolish builders who are building our life on sand. Get it? Good. You know, in regards to the last three months, I think Jesus would, what we've learned, I think Jesus would say the same thing to us that he said to his guys after he washed their feet in the upper room. In John 13, he said this, now that you know these things, 
You'll be blessed if you, what? If you do them. Jesus' half-brother put it this way, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourself, do what it says. Like, like, how do we deceive ourselves in regards to the word? By thinking that it's enough to merely listen, to merely agree with, to merely be convicted by that word without putting it into practice. John the Apostle drives this point further home in his first letter. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he says, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And Jesus said on the way to the garden to his guys, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Which implies what? If we do not keep his commandments, we do not what? We don't love him. And here's what concerns me deeply about so many Jesus followers today, myself included at times, is that we do not take Jesus seriously enough to actually strive to obey and do what he commands. Again, why do we call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he says? Yeah, God is glad that you're here listening to the message. He's glad. And he's glad that I'm spending hours preparing this message. But he says, Steve, if you're not going to put it into practice, what's the point? Why bother? And I say, brothers and sisters, let's be men and women who know and do, who hear and obey, and who build our lives on the solid rock of his word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, this morning, we're going to unpack the first of the final two of Jesus' You've heard that it was said, but I say to you illustrations about what it looks like to live in his kingdom and have a righteousness that surpasses that of the teachers of the law and Pharisees. Now, John Stott writes the following in his study of the Sermon on the Mount. Really smart dude. Uh, the final two, you've heard it said, but I say to you that Jesus lays out in Matthew 5, bring us to the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount for which it is both most admired and most resented. Namely, the attitude of total love which Christ calls us to show towards one who is evil and our enemies. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. And nowhere, he writes, is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. End quote. So here's our text for today, a text full of expressions that are still in common use today, and a text that maybe more than any other in the Sermon Amount has been both misunderstood and misapplied for centuries. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, someone say, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Question, have you ever heard that expression, eye for eye, tooth for tooth? I think we all have. Sometimes it's referred as, as lex talionis, Latin for the law of retaliation. Lex talionis, Right? But we could also call it the law of revenge, the law of getting even, the law of payback, 
the law of if you hurt me, I'll hurt you more. And I don't think I need to tell you that we live in a world where revenge, payback, vengeance, no justice, no peace, and getting even rule the day. And listen, we are far from immune to its influence. In fact, this week I I was thinking about this and thinking about what are my two favorite plot lines in a movie. One is an underdog winning, Rudy, Rocky, right? The other is revenge. My two all-time favorite movies are that way for the very reason, Braveheart and Gladiator. One of my favorite lines, maybe you remember this from Gladiator. He's in there. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legion, and loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father of a murdered son, husband of a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance. Oh, yeah, in this life or the next. Huh. Yes, revenge and retaliation dot our landscape. There are even websites dedicated to how you can get revenge on somebody. I found one this week that says, here's how you get revenge anonymously. Revenge on your ex-spouse, revenge on a friend, on your family, at school, on a co-worker. And here are some ways they suggest to get revenge. Don't take notes. <laughs> Listen to it later so no one sees you taking notes. Let the world know about their wrongdoing. Do something public that shames and humiliates them. Destroy something they love. Find a treasure item you know is important to them and destroy it. Ignore them. If you're still in contact with that person, start ignoring them. Pay them no attention. Refuse to help them in their time of need. Again, this depends on if you're still good in terms with them who wronged you. If they are, wait till they call upon you in need and give them a cold shoulder. Let them down. Show them up. Get in better shape. Dress better. Start living a better life and make sure they know all about it. Make them look bad. If you have the chance, you can do something public to embarrass them and demean them. Revenge. Now, before we dive into the text, I, I want to share with you what I, I think is the bottom line of what Jesus is teaching in the five verses about what life in his kingdom is all about. Understand Maple Grove, in a world full of people who constantly seek to get even and are always demanding their rights, Jesus says that those who live in his kingdom have the right to be wronged. You and I, as Jesus followers, have the right to be wronged. Let's dive into our text. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now that exact phrase, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, occurs three times in the Old Testament law. First in Exodus chapter 21, beginning at verse 22. We read this. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, and there's no serious injury. In other words, the baby's still alive. The offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there's serious injury, in other words, if the baby died because of this, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Then Leviticus chapter 24. 
Anyone who injures his neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in a dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the high priest and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges may, may, must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, given false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to that false witness as the witness intended to do the other party. In other words, if he's accusing someone of a crime, and that crime had this punishment, he's found to be a liar, guess what? The punishment you hope the guy you were lying about got, that's going to happen to you. It says, you must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear this and be afraid. No kidding, right? Who's going to take a chance of lying? And never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So again, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, were part of the Old Testament law. But listen, it was never intended to be a law that allowed for personal vengeance. Instead, it was a law that God gave to Israel's judges and magistrates to use in civil courts. Notice Exodus 21, 22, which we read just a second ago. The offender must be fined whatever the woman husband demands and the court allows. And Deuteronomy 19 17 and 18, the two men involved, one's lying, one's being accused, must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priest and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And again, God gave the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to Israel's judges so that wrongs would not go unpunished. To serve as a deterrent, there will be punishment. That punishment will fit the crime no matter whether the one committing it is a master or a slave. Also, he gave it to limit excessive retribution. The punishment could not go beyond the crime. Kind of like someone spilling coffee in 1992 from McDonald's and getting $3.2 million. I think that's a little excessive there, right? Now, don't go home and spill coffee, right, to try to sue someone. Right? They already put labels on it. You're too late. You missed that boat. It sailed. So, how did the Pharisees and teacher law distort God's law of eye for an eye, tooth for tooth? They changed the fear, sphere in which it was applied. See, they took the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth from the sphere of punishing doers of wrong in a judicial court and moved it into the sphere of getting personal revenge against anyone who does you wrong. And listen, whenever you take God, what God intended to be guidelines for civil justice, and move it into the sphere of personal response, we get in trouble. Like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is necessary for governments to maintain law and order in a society. However, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth is a lousy way to live out our personal relationships. Amen? In fact, living by Lex Talionis, you hurt me, I hurt you back has destroyed and is destroying countless marriages and families and friendships and churches and work environments, etc., etc., etc. Lex Talionis is not how you have a good marriage. It's not how you have a good family. 
And listen, on the other hand, whenever we take what God intended to be guidelines for our personal response to wrongdoing and move it into the sphere of how civil government should respond to evil acts and wrongdoers, we also get in trouble. Like, turning the other cheek when wrong is a great way to build a strong relationship. However, if, if, whenever civil governments and judicial systems adopt the same philosophy of turn the other cheek and not punishing wrongdoers, it is a terrible and grossly ineffective way to have healthy and peaceful society. Get it? Good. Understand context, you know, context is king, right? And, and, and it's so critical understanding context to apply biblical truths. And I might add that religious leaders then and today, knowingly and unknowingly, can take biblical truths out of context and distort them. As Peter said, writing about Paul, to their own destruction, right? And so I want to encourage you, you today and every day, right? Listen to me. Maybe what I'm saying is true. Maybe it's not. But God actually put some gray matter in your head and mine. He protected with really thick bone, and he expects us to use our brain and not depend on me. And not, oh, well, Steve said it. it's got to be true. Maybe it's not, right? Maybe it's not, okay? Again, these words in Matthew have been misunderstood and misapplied often to justify personal vengeance. Sorry, Maximus Desmus Meridius, right? Sorry, William Wallace. And also to, to pacify the role of civil government in adequately punishing evildoers which is the purpose, one of the purposes of civil government. Paul said in Romans 13, 4. Because someone looked at this text in Matthew 5, 38 to 42 and said, well, government can't punish anybody. Really? Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. Because Paul said this in Romans 13, 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. There are God's servants, agents of wrath that bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, 12 and 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor Nero who's persecuting you right now as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Bottom line, the false teaching of the Pharisees and teaching of the law that Jesus is correcting is the idea that God taught that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth applied to personal revenge, and when people hurt us, it does not. Matter of fact, Paul said, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge. I repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. He's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You've heard it said, an eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. In other words, do not resist, do not retaliate against a person who's wronged you and done you evil. Brothers and sisters, in a world full of people who constantly seek to get even and are always demanding their rights, Jesus says that those who live in his kingdom have the right to be wronged. And then Jesus gives four illustrations about how we're to respond personally when we're wronged. 
And listen, he did not intend for us to take these four illustrations and turn them into some legalistic law that we try to obey. Rather, they simply illustrate the point that to live in his kingdom means that we have the right to be wronged. His first illustration, turn the other cheek. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. Now we've all probably heard that before, turn to the other cheek. What does it mean? Does it mean that we have no right to defend ourselves from a physical attack? No. I mean, after all, Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, told his guys to go out and sell their cloaks and buy some swords. Why, to butter their bread? No, right? Because things were fixing to get serious and dangerous out there. Uh, does it mean that, hey, you know what? Slap my, slap my right cheek, slap my left cheek, and after that, I can lay you out, right? Because I baited it, right? Well, I, now it's time. Is that what? No. See, he's not talking about a physical attack. He's talking about a personal insult. A slap to the left cheek would be a backhanded slap with your right hand. And in that culture, still many days, that is a massive insult and a sign of disrespect. Like, you're not even worthy of me punching you in the face. Get away from me, you peasant. A Roman slave was quoted as saying, I would rather have a whip tear across my back than to be slapped with the back of my master's hand. Question. How do you respond when you're insulted? How do you respond when someone demeans you, humiliates you, dishonors you, and disrespects you? How do you respond when someone treats you like you are insignificant, unworthy, and do not matter? I mean, they have no right to treat you like that, to say those things, to make you feel that way. No, they don't. I mean, does Jesus care if people disrespect you, demean you, and dishonor you? Absolutely does. But he also cares what we think, how we feel, and how we respond whenever that happens to us. Again, how do you respond? Do you trade insult for insult? Saying demeaning, disrespectful, and dishonoring things to them and about them? And I I, got to admit that we talked about being a truthful person last week, so I got to be honest now, right? I, I got to admit that my fleshly instinct when I feel that someone has demeaned and disrespected me is to go into a verbal, chew them up, and spit them out attack mode, right? I'm Irish. No excuse. And I hate to admit that many times I've given in to that instinct, trading insult for insult. You disrespect me, I will disrespect you. You dishonor me, I'll dishonor you. In a world full of people who constantly seek to get even or always demanding their rights, Jesus says that those who live in his kingdom have the right to be wronged. Yeah, we do have rights. We have the right to be wrong. We have an obligation to respond in the same way that the one we claim to follow responded. Who, though he was God, did not cling to his rights as God. Though as God, he gave up those privileges. Though as God, he became a slave. Though as God, he was born a human. Though he was God, he died on a cross. We're to follow in the steps of the one of whom Peter wrote, he did not retaliate when he was insulted. 
or threatened revenge when he suffered. Remember he said, hey, I, I could call uh, 12 legions of angels. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. He says, hey, if I wanted to, I could call 72,000 angels right now, y'all. He said, but I'm not. <laughs> but I'm not. He did not retaliate when he was insulted or threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. One author I read this week wrote this. What Jesus is saying is this. When someone treats you in a way that is less than you deserve, when someone takes the right to dignity that you have, don't retaliate. Be slapped again before you would even think to retaliate. Take as much as they want to give and don't retaliate. If you're worried about your dignity, beloved, someday you're going to be a son of God in the image of Jesus Christ, and you're going to stay that way forever, and God's going to pour out all the goodness of his great grace on you forever and ever and ever. So if you're worried about your dignity, just hang on. You'll get it. Don't fight for it here. Because if you do, you're going to disavow the fact that you're a son of God and that you're related to Jesus because you won't be acting in a way that's consistent with who Jesus is. End quote. Next illustration he gives. And, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And the way that's worded here implies that there's some justification for this lawsuit. And, and the tunic was, it was a long undergarment that people wore. Even if you're poor, you probably had two or three. The cloak was your outer garment that kept you warm and actually was a blanket at night. And most Jewish people in Jesus' day knew that, that the law of Moses actually said that if you took someone's cloak, their outer garment, you couldn't keep it overnight. You had to give it back because they needed that to stay warm. And so the idea here is that you've done something wrong and you're being sued in court. And so when that happens, you don't have anything to pay except what you're wearing. I mean, it's like you're down to nothing, so he's going to get your shirt, proverbial, right? Jesus says, when he gets your shirt, just show how sorry you are that you ever did anything to cause him trouble, give him your coat too. Give him more than the law required. Again, to the Jew, this would immediately cause him to jump out and say, wait a second, I have my rights. I have my right to my coat. They cannot take my cloak. Jesus, however, calls his followers to go beyond what the law requires, to respond to our accusers and adversaries with grace. And our day we might say it like this, if he takes your coat, give him the shirt off your back. I, I like how the message paraphrase words this. If someone drags you into court and sues you for your shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. In other words, do what the law requires and then go further. And when we do this, God becomes our defense and our provider. And listen, this radically unselfish attitude would not only amaze the world, it invites the blessing and pleasure of God who's watching it all go down. Again, this is where there is something justified in this lawsuit, right? It's not saying someone can say, you know what, I'm gonna, it's not saying, I'm gonna sue this guy for his car, now you gotta give him the house. But there's no, no, he's not saying that. There's justification, you did wrong, you answer and pay for what you did wrong, and you go and you give more. In a world full of people who constantly seek to get even and are always demanding their rights, 
Jesus says those who live in his kingdom have the right to be wronged. Then he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, being willing to go the extra mile has been a saying in our culture for quite some time, and it finds its birth in this verse right here, verse 41. You see, Israel was an occupied nation under Roman law. A Roman soldier could compel an Israelite to assist them in carrying their burden, or in any matter, right? We saw that when Jesus going to the cross, right? There was a guy named Simon of Cyrene who was compelled by the Roman soldier to help Jesus carry his cross. That was the law. They had to do this. Sinclair Ferguson points out the Jews hated the practice because it publicly illustrated the humiliation of being a subjugated subjugated people. We can easily imagine how open to abuse it was. I read this week that what a soldier would do, they have their long spear and they would take that spear and they would put the spear on an Israel's shoulder with the edge against their neck and says, I'm compelling you to service. Do you feel compelled? Yeah, I feel compelled. Yeah, I feel compelled. Let's do this. The phrase one mile literally means in Latin a thousand paces. Jesus said, you know what? When they compel you to go one mile, when you get to the end of one mile, just don't drop it and move on. Carry it another mile. Do it not for the king of this world, but do it for the king of heaven. Obligation dictated the first mile, compassion directs the second. The Roman soldier would no doubt be shocked and wonder, why would you serve him, your enemy, when it's not even required? A guy named Michael Bell is a, a photographer, and I came across this picture this week of he tried to illustrate this in a modern way of Jesus actually living this out. And there's Jesus, he's, he's been compelled and if you notice, that's just not any soldier. This guy actually had it be a, a Nazi with a swastika. And when Jesus said this, that, the Romans were that, right? The Romans were the enemies. And, and what's that soldier going to think? Like, why are you doing this? I, I serve because I've been served. In fact, let me tell you about the one who came not just to serve me, but to serve all of us. To serve the world, bearing its burden of sin all the way to the cross. Yes, brothers and sisters, go the second mile. Embrace your right to be wronged. Question. What do you think going the second mile, what kind of impact do you think going the second mile would have in our relationships, our marriages, our churches, our workplaces. He has no right to ask me to get him his coffee. Here's coffee and here's a muffin for you. (laughs) But what kind of impact would it have? What kind of impact would go in the second mile? Well, I have my rights. You can't make me do this. What kind of impact would it have? You guys need to clean your rooms. Before we come back from the movie, your whole house is clean. They washed the second car. I know. We can dream, right? (laughs) But you get my point. Do more than is required. And so fulfill the law of Christ, which is love. In a world full of people who constantly seek to get even and are always demanding their rights, 
And, and, and for someone who loves revenge movies and have often traded insult for insult, don't disrespect me. Jesus says, you have the right to be wronged. And sometimes we think we're strong when we fight back. No. We're strong when we don't. We're strong when we don't. I have my rights. They can't. Well, no, they shouldn't treat you that way. We serve a different king. How about you? I, I don't want to violate this as badly as I have in the past. Give the one who asks you do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And again, he's talking about a legitimate need. Neither the Old Testament or New Testament encourages us to financially support those who don't work and who want to live off the hard work of others. Matter of fact, the Bible says, if a man will not work, then don't let him eat. Right? So he's not saying that. Right? He's not saying... This is a legitimate need. To Jew, some Jews would rather die than actually beg for help. Maybe you're that person, right? Man, if someone needs help, you're there. But the last thing you want to do is come to someone and say, hey, you know what? I need some help. My car's broken. Now, can I borrow yours? Rent came due, and I just can't pay it. Could you help with my utilities, right? Some of you would really rather die than do that. That's what he's talking about here. And let's not get silly and say, Give to anyone who asks you, right? He's not, really? Is that literally? If your four-year-old says, hey, can I borrow your nine-millimeter, Dad? Well, it says here that I can ask, right? No, right? Because we've got to realize sometimes giving people what they ask for would actually hurt them, right? So he's not saying that. This is a legitimate need. And, and, and I'll tell you, when, when I first studied this, I'm going like, okay, I, I don't see the connection with the other three illustrations, I don't, okay, in retaliation, I didn't see the connection. And, and then I got to thinking, you know, possibly I could verify with Jesus when I get to heaven. I don't know for sure. But maybe, maybe the one who asks is someone who's wronged me. Oh. Yeah, I'll give to you, you're my friend. Hey, Tom, you're my friend. We're bros. We're Baltimoreans, right? You know, you know, I'll give to you, but hey, I don't like you. You hurt me. I'm not, you need help. I'm not going to help you. I know your, lead, your, your need is legit, but you know what? I'm kind of glad that you can't pay your rent and may get evicted, right? So I, I'm kind of thinking that that's a connection. You know, that, that our giving can't just be to those who like us and treat us well, but maybe those who actually hurt us. A, a, a matter of fact, here, here's what a a Pharisee from Jerusalem wrote in the second century B.C. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. <laughs> do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread, but do not give it to them. For by means of it, they might subdue you. Then you'll receive twice as much evil for all the good you've done to them. For the Most High also hates sinners. <laughs> Way to go. Pharisee, and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to one is good, but do not help the sinner. And Jesus said, when someone comes to you has a need, and especially that person who's hurt you, don't lecture him, feed him. 
Don't shame him. Share with them what God has given you without expecting anything in return. One guy I read this week wrote this. Although withholding aid from the enemy was acceptable and even wise in the minds of some Jewish teachers, Jesus condemned even passive aggression, expressions of retaliation. He insisted that the disciples should view an enemy's adversity not as an opportunity to rub salt in the wounds or kick him while he's down, but as an opportunity to express love and generosity. And a world full of people who constantly seek to get even and are always demanding their rights, Jesus says those who live in his kingdom have the right to be wronged. I'm going to conclude with this quote from a, a smart guy named James Montgomery Boyce. What a cool name. If I had a name like that, I'd probably be smarter. But anyhow, here's what he writes. Nothing has done greater damage to our Christian testimony than our trying to be right and demanding the right of others. We become preoccupied with what is and what is not right. We ask ourselves, have we been justly or unjustly treated? And we think thus to vindicate our actions. But that is not our standard. The whole question for us is one of cross-bearing. You ask me, is it right for someone to strike my cheek? I reply, of course not. But the question is, do you only want to be right? As Christians, our standard of living can never be right or wrong, but the cross. The principle of the cross is our principle of conduct. Right and wrong is the principle of Gentiles and tax collectors. My life is to be governed by the principle of the cross and the perfection of the Father. Then he says this, if you're a Christian, learn soon this great spiritual lesson. Do not stand on your rights. The second mile is only typical of the third and the fourth. The cloak is only typical of our possessions. Our time is not our own. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not do it to defend our rights or his. It was grace that took him there. Now as his children, we are called to the same life of self-sacrifice and Christ-like service of dying to ourselves because what rights do dead men actually have anyway? Brothers and sisters in a world full of people who constantly and we're people seek to get even are always demanding their rights Jesus says those who live in his kingdom have the right to be wrong. April Grove, now that we know these things, we'll be blessed if we nod or had an agreement. We'll be blessed if we felt a twinge of conviction. No. We'll be blessed if we do that. Do not deceive yourself and be hearers only, right? But do what the word says, right? If you love him, you obey his commandments. The one who hears his teaching puts it into practice. This is a hard one. I think he's right. These are tough. Next week, loving your enemies. Come on, Jesus. Can we move on to something fun? Uh, yeah, but this is, this is the kingdom. And wouldn't it change the world? Wouldn't it make a difference? Hey, and why don't we start in our homes? Does anyone here have a relationship with anybody? A mom, a dad, a brother or sister, a husband or wife, a friend, a coworker? What if we like said, hey, you know what? That's how I change the world, right? I don't change the world by going on social media and changing it. I change the world by one life at a time. And if we display this attitude 
of we have the right to be wronged, I think it can make a huge difference in our world. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that this is even possible, right? It seems impossible. He'll help you. It'll help me do this and live it out. We're, we're going to uh, sing a song, and this is kind of like leads us into our time of communion. And if you haven't grabbed your communion, it's at the various kiosks, and that's where we also drop in our offering. If you're here today and you, you know, want to talk about your walk with Christ, grab me at this point, grab me after service, email me during the week. But I just pray right now, we're singing a song called Available. And, and, and God wants people to live the way we're talking about. And, and are we available to it? To hear his call to live differently than the world does. Would you stand? And I'm going to pray. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. God, I thank you for your word. It isn't always easy. It isn't always fun to look in the mirror. And to see that at times we may be the person who's demanding our rights. Who's demanding that we're treated with dignity and respect. On the other hand, we turn around and demean and dishonor and disrespect others. Father, I pray that we'll live out the truths of your word. May we follow in the steps of Jesus. May we truly embrace that we have the right to be wronged. Holy Spirit, I have no doubt that there's something you want to whisper into each of our hearts so that we're just not hearing words. We're embracing a lifestyle. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.